Hey everyone, I, uh, if you're tuning in, appreciate it this week. As I'm sure you're aware, things are pretty rough around the world right now. Um, because of that, no intro, no cold open this week. We didn't feel that it was appropriate to be making jokes in light of the events in Israel. Um, this is tough. I... For me personally, I have a lot of friends who are affected by this. And so it's heartbreaking. Um, I, uh, part of the reason we do this podcast is we hope that even if only in a small way that a few more people are more educated, more knowledgeable and care more about these types of topics and that in the grand scheme of things, it helps these types of terrible things happen less. So, uh, with that, we'll get into it. Thanks. Rolling into it. Welcome back. How's it going, James? Good. How are you, Andrew? Uh, I'm tired. I don't know about yeah. you. I'm a little shocked still. Uh, it's been a long weekend. And unlike most people, I didn't have an actual long weekend. I went to work this morning. Um, make a comment about your work celebrating certain holidays, but it's okay. It, I, it is, it is kind of surprising that we don't have this day off, but I guess it's, it's not a federal holiday. So well, anyway, I think the shocking news for all of us and whether you went to work on monday or not was what what happened over the weekend we yeah. were a little bit less scripted not that we're scripted ever but for anywhere close to being organized but we're a little bit less scripted than normal i think because we just we want to talk about what we've been seeing images we've been seeing and, and the horrific violence um and just talk about it with our listeners and uh, kind of put it in perspective. Yeah, I'll start with some top line numbers just to where we're at. And the thing is, this is like a snapshot at moment, right? So it's 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, October 9th. Last time I checked where we're at. So over the weekend, Hamas invaded uh, southern Israel. They tore down some of the Gaza border wall. They came by land, by sea, by air, by tunnel. Uh, and they attacked civilians across a wide swath of, of Southern Israel. The, the latest updates that I had were that there was over a thousand confirmed dead Israelis. Uh, there was over a thousand confirmed dead Palestinians now. Um, and, regard and the world number is probably higher because confirmed lags behind to confirm. Yeah. Let's say 48 to 72 hours behind what, what actually happens. Yeah. I think some of the estimates I had seen from the more like just from like group chats or different threads or, you know, discord channels or people posting online that were Israeli were anywhere from going up to three, four, maybe even 5,000 now, just because there's yeah, lots of bodies to still be found. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people missing. Uh, I had from the state department, they've now confirmed over 10 Americans were killed in this uh, 
attack from Hamas. There's, I believe, 14 countries that have confirmed so they've had at least one citizen who was killed in these attacks. Those range from Argentina, Mexico, Germany, the United States, Thailand, the Philippines, uh, and a number of others. They, there's a unknown amount of hostages that were kidnapped and taken into Gaza. They're now being used as ransom human shields, some sort, uh, by Hamas and the other extremist Islamist factions that are based in Gaza. And yeah, it's, it is a terrible, awful situation. Uh, the whole thing is like a powder cake. It kind of feels like we're just waiting for more of the, it just feels like we're like waiting for the next move at this point. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's horrific violence. And I mean, what is shocking is, is the violence against civilians, unwarranted, terrible, terrible acts are being done. Like these, these civilians are being killed, but then they're also being just dragged off as hostages, uh, into back into, um, the Gaza Strip. Some of the, I think most people by this point have seen a lot of the videos on social media, which have been a lot more prevalent than the Ukrainian videos now, um, which is a little bit surprising. But uh, it's it's something where where it feels like I think it hit home in a, in a lot of ways that it has it has like these kind of terrorist organ or terrorist attacks haven't been able to uh, until like the the spread of of this kind of social media. Um, so I think across the world, everybody's feeling it. I know I was shocked and horrified and, and still am from seeing these images and just hearing these, hearing these numbers. Um, but I, Maybe, I wanted to I recognize before we kind of an, analyze the, the hows, the whys and, and give it context, which I think we're both eager to jump to, uh, as well as probably the listeners are wanted to take a moment to, to recognize the tragedy of, of what's going on and, and the loss, the people who have lost family, friends, um, or loved ones of some sort, um, you know, my heart goes out to those people and I know yours does too. Yeah. I feel the same way. I think to just be really clear about it, it's really as simple as violence against civilians, children, the elderly, yeah, unarmed combatants is just like uncalled never. For, it's just not justified. For, yeah, there is the, no the, situation in any kind of war. I mean, even not this situation, especially not this situation, but any kind of war where violence is called for against innocent civilians. Period. There is no. There's no acceptable version of that answer. Um, but yeah. Even even in war, there are rules of warfare, and part of what makes this so heinous and and, and terrifying is is that those have just been ignored, and which also is why we can point to and say like this is terrorism. It's not right, you and, know. And and purpose, Hamas's goal is to spread terror. That that is why it's happening. So, I think let's. Let's give context about why this is happening now, and then we can backtrack and maybe give a little bit more historical context about the region and about Israel. Um, 
that sounds good to you. So first off, Iran is claiming credit for funding and helping um, Hamas plan these attacks, which is an important piece of piece of information. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Additionally, from Israeli side, Israel side, they were unprepared in ways that they have not been unprepared in 50 years. Um, and it, this gets a little bit more into the historical context, but the last time they were surprised, they have what Israel has one of the best intelligence organizations in the world, period. And the reason for that was 50 years ago in 1973, they were surprised again on a holiday. Uh, and I, I don't know if we've mentioned that, but it was a, a Jewish holiday. Um, yeah, it was the end of the Sukkot, Sukkot holiday um, when this attack took place or began. The last time in 1973, this kind of attack happened was the Yom Kippur War, where uh, it was, uh, again, an intelligence failure of untold magnitude. And so the Israelis took the lesson from that is we're never going to have this kind of oversight, this blindsight. Again, we're going to see these attacks before and we're going to be prepared. And so their intelligence service, as well as the Israeli Defense Force, also known as the IDF, some of the best in the world. Because they've had to, because they've been under this threat, this constant, you know, pressure from all their neighbors in some form or another into some scale or another. Um, but fast forward to today, I don't think anyone saw this coming. Certainly there hasn't publicly admitted been any indicators that this kind of attack was coming, even though Iran was involved or, or they claim they were, which I really have no reason to doubt and, and every reason to believe them on this, uh, on this front. So it's, it's a, this is, as we talked about, this is, this is an invasion, an attack that was very complicated land, air, sea, and rocket attacks, right? They used paragliders to get over the, the wall. Uh, that separates the the regions. They used bulldozers to push the fence out of the way. Like very complicated attack. A lot of people involved, and yet Israel did not see this coming. Nor did Western intelligence intelligence agencies like the CIA. Do you have uh, any thoughts on why that happened? Why well, they failed to see? So there, there's a number of things that have started to come come to light. In it right. So like we were saying, the the recent context is important to understand. So a few episodes back, we talked about the large scale protests that were going on in Israel, because of this proposed judicial reform, and some of the other like reform laws that the current administration is trying to push through that would change a lot of how the political system in the country works. So as we know, Netanyahu is the current prime minister, it's, it's his administration, the current government is one of is I believe the most conservative government that the Israelis have ever had. Um, just in, again, in sort of some historical context, basically the, the Jewish state, when it was created was composed of largely an amalgamation of like center left to very left secular Jews. Like it was like a lot of, a lot of the Jewish people who founded Israel were kind of self-identified socialists, um, which, you know, history, <laughs> history is kind of funny. Uh, and basically, over the course of the history of the country, their, poli their, their political Overton window has just progressively shifted right 
as they have continued to deal with conflict and security issues in their region. That's the that's the political science term for the the window of of what is acceptable political discourse. Yeah. So now with Netanyahu in government, they've had these they've had all these protests and these disagreements about the the judicial reforms. Several months ago, you had reservists saying that if these go through, then they're not going to be involved. And so there's been some there, there's been some some conflict going on between the government and the military. The large picture, I think, is basically the government was focused on its own internal problems more so than any of the external things. Mm-hmm. And while there's always been a low lying tension with the Palestinians and it flares up and down over the course of you know, the last 75 years, the government was really not so focused on that issue at this point in time. Uh, and that led to a few decisions being made that have led to where we're at today. One of those is that the the current government in Israel had made it had made a decision to place more of their active troops into the West Bank than on the Gaza border. They had become more reliant on their technology on the Gaza border and less so on the amount of like on having just basically more bodies there. Mm. You then combine this with the Jewish holiday and realistically it, it was a very much a skeleton crew who was just manning some of the like the camera stations and those sorts of things along the yeah. Gaza. But but that's that's makes sense on a military security front but from a intelligence perspective, this this thing was allegedly, and again, no reason to disbelieve, months in the planning. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Hamas officials, high level, uh, you know, maybe officials is the wrong wrong term, but you know, powerful people within the Hamas party meeting uh, allegedly Iranian officials. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. I think that that's. I want to get to that. I just pointing out sort of the, yeah, you know, like where the troops were kind of how this is going. Um, so then on, on top of that, one of the things that I think is really interesting that we've started to figure out and see other, like from various like analyses and picking up the, the Palestinians in Hamas learned from the last year and a half of this Ukraine Russia war. Mm. Uh, they were studying what was going on in this war and how they were fighting each other. One of the primary tactics they used to sort of initiate this attack was they took small drones and they attached, you know, grenades or small like explosive devices to them and used those to seek out like radar towers and like cameras and those sorts of things uh, along this high security border that they then, you know, took out. Right. Um, Asymmetric warfare. This is taking a relatively low tech or low cost solution to knock out or take advantage of vulnerabilities in high-tech more expensive uh you know security and it in ukraine it's been the opposite usually the ukrainians are flexible agile coming up with these innovative solutions and unfortunately it seems that these terrorists in hamas have have learned from this as well yeah, I you know I think it's it's a it's a good reminder, right? Like like war anywhere is being watched by everyone who's interested in any type of conflict or violence. Although 
you know, there, I, I think I've seen the videos of, of grenades being dropped from dr drones into watchtowers to kind of mm -hmm. take out that uh, observation ahead of the attack. And that's the asymmetric warfare. But on the flip side, from what I've seen, the Iron Dome, that's the anti-missile defense system that Israel has surrounding it, um, is a network of radars and, and sensors that are linked to anti-missile missiles. So when there's a rocket that Hamas or some other bad guy shoots in, they sense it and, and hit it with another, it's called a kinetic kill. And I, I guess according to Israeli government statements, it's been 90% effective. You still have that unfortunate 10% of the rockets, you know, sneaking through and hitting civilian targets, but it's nowhere near as, as uh, terrible as it could be. As it could have been the, the thing, like the thing with, I mean, this is with any missile defense system is they're, they're vulnerable to being overwhelmed, right? They, yeah. There is a, there is a limit, a capacity to how many missiles, like each of the systems can track at a time. And well, then, and, be... also, and also as a, you shoot up a missile to kill the incoming missile, right? You're, you, if you have N anti-missile missiles, all the enemy has to do is shoot N plus one missiles at you. And yep. you can try to reload, but then it becomes a game of who can reload faster, who can, on, and on the, the kind of grander time scale, who can buy those anti-missiles missiles faster than the threat missiles, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that there, there's like a, there's a, there's a quote about war, I think it's from like an American general about how like, like politicians argue about war strategy, the winners of war discuss logistics, something yeah. like that, yeah. you know? Well, and, and that's why, I mean, kind of relating this to Ukraine, that's why so many people have been talking about ammo stockpiles and shortages uh, that we're giving to Ukraine or, or in Europe as well, because, and and this may turn into a similar situation and we might have the same problem. And this is, might be why Hamas and Iran are, are going for it and think they have a fair shot of victory here, right? Like no, I mean, to take a step back, no warfare, warfighter, stra strategy thinker, right? Nobody goes to war, whether on defense or offense, if you think you can't win. If you think you can't win, you sue for peace in some way. And so... I mean, and I want to kind of bring this to the bigger picture, too, of why Hamas is doing this now, why Iran's doing this now. One of the reasons may be that they see the, the stockpile, uh, the American stockpile, the Western stockpile of weapons decreasing, and they know that Israel can't rely as much as, as it normally would on on the West because yeah. we're so engrossed in and, and captivated, uh, captured by uh, the Ukrainian war and our stockpiles have been deleted. Or before, before we go too deep into the detail on the on the high level on that stuff, I just want to kind of geographically set the stage because I think that that's helpful in understanding why all these things are playing out, how they play out, right? So Israel is a very small country. It's approximately the size of the state of New Jersey. It's a very dense country, urban-wise. It's a population of about 10 million between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. I think it's 4 million of those people are packed into what is essentially a horizontal line that is... 20 maybe 30 miles wide it's it's not long big at all why is the word you're looking for whatever you know but so now you take the country right on the on the on israel's northern border you have two countries you have lebanon and you have syria the northwest is lebanon the northeast you have the syrians 
Lebanon is sort of a de facto client state of Iranian of Iran, not the Iranians or the Iranians, however you want to play it, because there is a political organization in Lebanon called Hezbollah, which is a political party slash terrorist organization. They're largely funded and supported by the Iranians. They occupy many of the most powerful positions in the Lebanese government. They kind of have the the final say on what goes on in the country of Lebanon. Then you have. I want to interject here because I think that's a really good point to make in Lebanon, right? And Iran, the position of the country and these certain parties like uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas in Palestine, but also the Iranian government in Iran doesn't the, when we talk about these entities, we're not always really talking about the widespread public. I think there's been some indicators that a lot of people do not support um, the Iranian government in within Iran. A lot of Iranians don't support the Iranian government in, in the actions that they're taking. Also, not all Lebanese support Hezbollah. So these, in some cases, and to varying degrees, and it's really hard to tell because accurate polling doesn't exist, but in, in a lot of cases, these are minority parties or minority organizations that control the larger state. So I think it is important to make that distinction. Yeah. yeah. No, in the way that, right, like if you, you know, you think of America supports this and you draw that assumption based on who the president is, right? That's a... But, but even two more... In case well, you well I'm saying you, take, you have to take the opposite perspective, right? Because like in the United States, we have a representative government, right? There are people that we choose to represent us. Places like Lebanon, Iran, Syria, they have the opposite of that. Like these are full zero say whatsoever in who their leadership is, the decisions their government makes. There's, uh, yeah. So it's a, it's an important distinction to make. Like, I, and I, and for anybody who does listen, I, I hope you realize that our intent is not to vilify, you know, every Syrian, every Palestinian, every Lebanese person. That to be very clear, that is not the intent at all. And there are. You know, a lot of these people are hostage of, of their own governments, unfortunately. So, yeah, to kind of going back to that. So Syria to the northeast, Bashar al-Assad is a, I don't even know how to accurately describe how terrible this guy is. Uh, he used chemical weapons everybody, on his own people. Um, of the bad situation in Syria and the dictator that rules, rules Syria. Yeah. That's a whole nother political, socio-political, military, not to unpack that we can do it another time. Yeah. So then to the east of Israel, you have Jordan, which is semi-neutral. Um, they're, they generally are a lot, it's a lot more stable of a relationship with the Israelis. And then to the south, you have Egypt, which uh, for the last couple decades has been more of a stable relationship, but the Egyptians were part of the 1967 war. They were part of the, the 1973 Yom Kippur war. They tried to wipe out Israel. Um, and Egypt is one of the countries that from the polling and the things I've seen, like their general populace is a lot more anti-Israel than some of the other parts of the region. So just putting into context, the, the Israelis realistically on all sides are, are surrounded by enemies and at best people who don't think about wanting to kill them every day only some days but that's why 
so that that's the historical or I guess the geopolitical context, but we kind of saw a breakthrough in historically for decades, these countries and the entire Middle East, which is predominantly Muslim, has been very um, aggressive towards Israel, sometimes often str- sparking into to, to, to real conflict. Yeah, uh, but we had the Abraham Accords in 2020, which some some Middle Eastern countries normalized relations with uh, Israel. Which means that when you normalize relations, before relations are normalized, if relations are, I guess, denormalized, it means that country does not recognize you as a country. So those Arab countries, like like UAE, Saudi Arabia, and some others. And most of the Middle East did not recognize Israel as a country. Which and, functionally means things like there is no consulate that, of yours in that country. There is no direct flights from any of your airports to their airports. More there's little trade. There's little there's, engagement. There's no talking. Like, there's no talking. So, yeah. and often, you know, often with normal or unnormalized relations, that means that you consider them to be an interloper, not to be you don't accept them on the world stage, which in some cases it means that you are in active conflict with them or inactive conflict, which I think would kind of characterized it. You certainly view them as an antagonist. Right. Antagonist. That's the word I was looking for. Anyway, they normalized relation with the Abraham Accords. And then in recent months, there has been very strong indicators from both MBS, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Netanyahu, who's the prime minister of Israel, and Biden, President Biden, that Saudi Arabia and Israel were very close to normalizing relations. This would be historic. Like, we could not understate how game-changing that would be for the region. It would be one of the, like, the largest foreign policy achievements of the last century. Right. And, And it's because the history of, you know, the antagonism there. Um, I mean, you, we could we could dive in and have it in and have a whole episode on, on on why Israel and these countries don't get along. But anyway, Saudi Arabia was going to normalize relations. Uh, it was largely thought that the price for that that the U.S. would pay um, would be to start up a nuclear reactor, a nuclear program for energy. So no weapons, no nuclear warheads, quote unquote. Uh, in, in we, we Saudi- know how that goes, <laughs> right? But I mean, that's an important point because that would mean Saudi Arabia would have be one step closer to a nuclear weapon. And while they might never execute on that, um, it means that and and other countries are kind of in this limbo state too, where they're nuclear countries energy wise, but they don't have nuclear weapons. But it's kind of largely understood that if anybody is too aggressive towards them, they will escalate those nuclear programs into, you know, nuclear warhead programs. Japan, I think, is like this. Uh, and Taiwan, I think, Taiwan. Has, the, has the capacity to, they have the knowledge. I don't think, the, I don't know if they have nuclear reactors online. I think theirs are offline, but um, they, like, there's a, Taiwan is in the cadre of countries that if they decided to do it, they could probably have a nuclear weapon in 180 days or less. It, anyway, it means that if you if you have a nuclear energy program, not only is a nuclear energy program good, but 
for your energy grid, your energy matrix and energy independence as a country. But it means that you are maybe 100 days, 80 days might be exaggerating, but you are very close to a nuclear weapon if you should need it. This is important because Iran, as everybody knows, is developing nuclear weapons. They're largely thought to have to be almost there, if not all the way there. They started enriching again after uh, President Trump backed out of the Iranian nuclear deal. Wait, so does that mean that if if you get nuclear reactors to uh, for energy purposes, but then you get nukes out of them, like, does that improve your ESG rating? (laughs) Because it's cleaner energy, right? I don't, that's an that's an interesting cl- question. Technically cleaner, but there's a lot of there's a lot of downsides. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I think it's cleaner, but then well, you have nuclear waste. But that's relatively small of a factor compared to the carbon dioxide. That other, anyway. Long story short, Saudi Arabia and was was close to normalizing relations with Israel getting nuclear, a nuclear reactor, a nuclear program in a broader sense, mm-hmm. and honestly stabilizing the region and become, and by doing that, I think everybody kind of thought that Saudi Arabia and would kind of, they're already, they're Sunni, largely majority Sunni. And so are a lot of countries. I, I doubt there's very many Shia in Saudi Arabia at all. Right. <laughs> like, But so that's the other kind of factor to this is you don't have just have is Muslims versus uh, Jewish. You have the different sects of Islam that also are quasi antagonists towards each other, depending on the, the time period in the country. But that's a different issue. Saudi Arabia would emerge from this as a regional leader that would, you know, be negative for Iran, not only for them having, for Saudi Arabia having nuclear, a nuclear program, but, you know, that makes Iran have a little bit less influence over the region. Realistic, it would have, I think there, there's a fair argument to be made that it, it would have been like almost the perfect balance for the region, right? You would have, you would have had like, cause the Iran, like the Iranians are very much the, the aggressors and sort of they're kind of the bully of the region because they have nukes and they have a authoritarian regime that's just not afraid to push everyone around and to do things that the rest of the world thinks are terrible and if saudi arabia and this deal had gone through they would have had a closer relationship with the israelis they would have gotten this nuclear energy capacity it would have served as some degree of deterrent, I think, for Iranian aggression in the region, just because it changes some of the calculus that the Iranians would be doing if they were upsetting the Saudis or maybe pushing some of the conflict too far or giving the Houthi rebels too much we- too many weapons and damaging too many oil refineries or, you know, whatever it might be. So but- the, the, but the window, the, I think Netanyahu said this, the political window for that deal, for that normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel was very small, very rare. They were very close to doing it. Iran saw this and pushed, funded, and helped the Hamas plan this attack. 
Well, I think let's just draw the line here. Okay, so so this this is what we think. Like like to this point, like this this is largely speculation. Now we don't actually know exactly factually for sure. Like how much money the Iranians did, how much they actually did support if they did train. Like we're going into the realm of speculation now because this is still seventy two hours since this this war. It's a war now. But what is not speculation is they have claimed credit for it. And this yep. would be the reason why I believe them. No one's corroborated that. This is true. I, I agree with that. And that's an important caveat. But this is the reason I believe that claim yep. that they supported it. And so their goal was to torpedo this deal, which I think was successful. But I'm, I'm unconvinced of that, but we can get there. But the idea, I think now we're fully in speculation mode is that commit this atrocious attack, spark a violent reaction from Israel because reacting they are, as we speak, they're conducting airstrikes, excuse me, airstrikes in Gaza um, and the a ground invasion is going to follow uh, Netanyahu said. Yeah. So there's going to be retaliation and they have to. It's not just a, it's not just a revenge thing, although I'm sure they're not doing it neutrally, but Hamas took prisoners, a lot of civilian prisoners, and they're hiding them in the tuzzles. They have to go in and they have to get those civilians out. Um, so I think the goal is to create a an outrage, spark an outrage among the Arab world at Israel's reaction, at Israel's re-invasion or counter-invasion into Gaza. And I'd say, well, so, so here, so here, here's the, here's the, the armchair analyst playbook, right? Is Hamas knows that they can't win a full scale war with the Israelis. They don't have as advanced of technology. They don't have as good of equipment. They don't have any of the armor. They just objectively, they know this, but what they do know is that if they do what they did, which is go just indiscriminately murder civilians, they will provoke a very aggressive response. And now that is what is happening. The Israelis have said they're going into Gaza. They are going to try to root out every single Hamas terrorist that they can find. They're going to try to kill every single one of them. This means that there are going to be a lot of Palestinian civilians who die because this is a war. And that is a very sad reality. That's terrible. That is awful. I think Israeli forces won't do that on purpose. It's going to be no, they're not, they're not going to be going, but there are going to be, there is going to be collateral damage. And so the playbook is they're going to take that and they're going to put that in the media through all of the Arab world and try to incite as much rage and bloodlust as they can to say, look, the Israelis are murdering Palestinian civilians. And with that, the idea being that they want to scuttle any possible support that there could be for any type of normalization with the Israelis. The next things that I, this is what we're trying to figure out, and 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 nobody knows knows the answer to this is is there's a question of what other plans are there? Like how how deep does the strategic planning go? How deep does the game go? There's a question of is Iran supporting and preparing for a larger scale war in the region and trying to sort of initiate this and a number of steps to get to a point where the Israelis are fighting the Palestinians in Gaza. Hezbollah on the on the northern border, the and Syrians on the northern border. That is confirmed that Hezbollah has engaged. Yeah, 
Israeli forces on the northern border. Yeah. I think today they, there was confirmation of at least five Hezbollah soldiers had been killed by Israeli airstrikes or gunfire skirmishes along the, the northern border. Israelis had been sending up a lot of armor. Um, there was also something about the Syrian government was preparing to send some of its troops down to that that its border with Israel, which is on the Golan Heights, which is northernmost tip of Israel, southernmost tip of Syria. So there's kind of a question of like, also like what, what, what is like, how deep does the game go here? Right? Like, are, are they trying to draw, you know, the US or other people into into conflict to try to spark a broader regional war? I don't know. Um, I, I think they are trying to coalesce. They are trying to get all the Arab allies they can spark that outrage and kind of do a multi multi pronged front frontal attack on Israel while they, while they can before before that that normalization happened before that became the status quo and because I think it's important to say once Saudi Arabia had normalized relations with Israel if that had ever happened all those other countries would as well and maybe not immediately but it would Saudi Arabia was the regional leader especially among the Sunni Sunni um countries so that would have kind of tipped the balance in Israel's favor and as you as we talked about earlier been a pretty stabilizing force for the region now the 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 goal Hamas's goal or Iran's goal is to completely disrupt that get the entire Arab world provoked and attacking Israel I don't I don't know what their end goal is because as you said, I don't. I don't think they can win. They can't force Israel off the map, even though that is their stated goal. Hamas's stated goal is to kill Jews and force Israel off the map. See, and that's the thing, right? Is like, like Hamas can't can't win, but there's a world where Iran can't, mm -hmm. and an Iranian victory. This is literally what they have said: is the destruction of the Israeli state. Well, if you're Iran, what does that look like, right? Well, number one, you probably, you do poke the bear as much as possible and get them fighting the Palestinians. You try to exhaust as much of their ammunitions, their artillery, take out as much armor as possible before you even engage them, right? Which is kind of what's going on right now. Um, mm -hmm. So I think do like... Think there's a, do you think there's a possibility for A, either Iran to get actively involved with their, their own forces and or be this to spark into a larger regional conflict. It's already a fairly large re regional conflict, but it's Hezbollah and Hamas, maybe Syria involved. Do you think other countries in addition to Iran will get involved? So two questions. Yeah, I that that's the concern, right? Like a week ago, I, if you would have asked me, you know, hey, like, will, will there be, you know, Iranian Revolutionary Guards shooting at Israeli IDF soldiers? Like, well... I hope not like 1% chance, but now, that, but but now it's, now it's, I think it's significantly higher like of, a, of, a, of a risk. I don't know. I don't know. Like that. I would put it as high as 25 yet. Um, the thing that I've been saying is, is realistically, we have to watch, we have to watch the Northern border, the Israel, Israel's Northern border, because 
if we start to see there being like any type of like armor or anything like that from the Syrians or Hezbollah uh, being rolled up there, then the Israelis will start to think that they're under threat of direct invasion from the north as well, which that starts to change their calculus, right? Because for them, it's not just a, it's not just a war to win. It's not about taking land or, or it's not survival. about, it's, yeah. it is survival, right? And so their calculus is when they are looking at everything that's going on, their decisions are led by, we have to maximize our, our possibility to, to not have the entire country wiped out. Right. Which is, which is very different than, you know, fighting for a region or a piece of land or, or something like that, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a completely different framework to be making your decisions in. So I think Iran probably just, and, and other countries that would want to be involved in the region, they take a step back. They see how this evolves and it's a, especially for Iran, it's a no lose situation. I think. Um, yeah, the, 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 either a, you know, Israel's leak weakened slightly that's the best case for israel i think b in the short term maybe over the long term it you know makes them more prepared and and increases their defenses and focuses them on on the external threat b you know they bet better cases they disrupt those saudi israel accords which is looking probable i think i saw something a headline that said mbs the crown prince of saudi arabia is probably going to drop that issue and see, you know, best case, Iran, uh, Israel's losing. Iran throws their force even more behind Hamas and Hezbollah and does what they want to do, unfortunately. But then, but then where does the U.S. get involved? Where does the West get involved? Can we get involved? Do the, we have the resources right now with everything going on with Ukraine? I think the answer is definitely yes, but you know, it comes at a cost. It comes at a, at a very significant cost. I, and I think that's like, that's probably the scariest thing about all of it, right? Is because if it does turn into a full-blown regional war, then who who besides the U.S. steps in to, to assist the Israelis, right? We're and, moving uh, at the Gerald Ford strike group. So the aircraft carrier that was in the Med, as well as the associated other ships. On their way to the Eastern Med. I think uh, the, the statement right now is for humanitarian assistance if they need it, as well as power projection, a show of force for our allies in the region. But, you know, it's also like we said, really, I mean, there's those, a number of Americans who are hostages. Like, yeah. So. Which is another thing. Like, do we, I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other, I, because each, each way, each each course of action has consequences, but at what point do we send SEALs or Marines in to help get American hostages out? Uh, you know, I, I want to say every American matters 100%. We should get them out. But that, that may and probably means that American lives, American soldiers' lives are lost. In, in that operation, that may mean that we get even more entangled in the region in this conflict ourselves directly, not just indirectly in our support for Israel. But can I, uh, I kind of, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but I do want to like bring, like go full, 
you know, zoom all the way out if we're in Google Maps here, like go look at the whole globe, not just the region. Go full speculation. Tinfoil. Tinfoil hat. <laughs> I think, I don't know for sure. I have no way of saying that this is true and nobody will ever be able to say this unless, you know, certain top secret intelligence agencies get whiff of it. But I think Russia and China were encouraging Iran to do this. My reasoning is this. First of all, Russia wants to take the focus off of Ukraine and wants to divide the Western, the West's focus, particularly the U.S.'s focus. Um, we talked about ammo shortages. We talked about money and aid going there. We, you know, it's only in Putin's interest to get the United States to, distracted, both resource-wise and, and public opinion-wise. To not be looking at Ukraine as much, yeah. Right. And then I think the same case can be made on a more longer term with China, because their stated goal is to retake Taiwan and control Taiwan. Right now, the U.S. has been pretty pretty strong in its support for Taiwanese autonomy. It's not independence, but Taiwanese autonomy. And that's an important distinguish, distinguish, di, distinction. Wow, there's the words that I can't get out today. It is. Uh, but... China wants the U.S. to be distracted by Ukraine, which has been a focus for a while now, and then by this conflict in the Middle East. They want us to get dragged into it. They want public support to be distracted by it. And then when the security, military security apparatus is focused on it, then they, they don't invade Taiwan. I'm not going to say they're going to invade Taiwan because I don't think that's how it happened, but they're it's called salami slicing, right? They, they, they do something that would not be okay, that's not accepted norms, that gives them a little bit more of what they want, but never to the threshold, never, never to the level to which the U.S. or the West would respond in, in any significant fashion other than a, a public PR statement, right? And so I think their goal is while this is happening, make a couple more salami slices towards Taiwan and, and chop off a little bit more of their freedoms, whether that's, you know, economic restrictions, whether that's, you know, strong. And, and this is actually that Taiwan has a huge election in January. Uh, and one party is, it's not pro-China, but one party is definitely more normalize relationships and, and have a, a closer relationship with China. And the other party is more, no, we're a free country, you know, separate organization from, from China. So I think they want to distract the world while they up the false fake news and the, and the flood of cyber attacks and, and everything else that not short of, it's not an invasion. It's short of an invasion, but it, maybe takes a form of a quasi quarantine around the country or, or an influence of the public opinion. And, and the U S we don't see it or we do see it, but you know, we don't have enough resources or focus politically and, and militarily to. Right. To and I say in the same way that the judicial reforms and the nationwide protests had the government focused on right. Gaza, which contributed to this atrocity being able to happen there's an argument that that a similar thing could could occur with with this in the United States and and Ukraine and not being you know, paying right. as much attention to the Asia Pacific and therefore again it's only in China's interest to distract the US and to distract NATO distract western countries 
Yeah. I don't, I'm not saying that we will be distracted. I think we can do more than one thing at once. We have a lot of smart people, a lot of uh, different people involved with these, you know, different conflicts. But I think when you talk about public opinion, that's another matter. Yeah. And public opinion, I think China understands the U.S. well enough, and Putin understands the U.S. well enough to know that things really only happen in a significant way if public opinion was be is behind it. Look at World War II. We didn't go to war with Japan, even though, you know, FDR wanted to. We didn't go to war until after Pearl Harbor. And, and we went to World War with Nazi Germany, too, even though Nazi Germany had not yet attacked us. But that is because at that point, public opinion supported it. I'm not saying we're going to war with anyone. That's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm just trying to say that public opinion matters. And only matters to do anything significant foreign policy wise. And public opinion can only focus on one or two things at once. Yeah, right. Like like foreign policy is domestic policy by other means. It's yeah. like a classic ism of, of foreign policy and, and geopolitics and all of that. One-winded way to say that I think that Russia and China are more involved than we give credit for. Again, I, have no way. For, for... I think the thing that, that's interesting to me about the speculation is that, like, I, again, there's no way to ever know, but I'd be more curious to, to know if, if they, if either of them were like directly involved in this and sort of like instigating it, right. Like that they're building relationships with the Ayatollah's regime and different terrorist organizations in the Middle East and sort of instigating them to be belligerents like this. Or if it's more of just like a, you know, they hear that, you know, hey, these guys are planning this attack on people who are enemies of our enemies, you know, or friends of our enemies. Therefore, we're like encouraging it. You know what I mean? Because those are different things, right? Like the Russians being directly involved in helping, let's say, train and arm Hamas is different than them being like, yeah, we support Hamas and just like not having any sort of relationship or anything. Um Again, yeah, there's no way to know, but it's it's something that be curious to consider because if those relationships do go deeper, then then that becomes a lot scarier real quick. I don't I don't know if there's deeper relationships and what form or, or the how and why of it or the how and the when where of it, but I so here's here's an interesting thing to kind of add to this theory that Greece might oh wow that I'm reading something else sorry China. China might not be directly involved, but maybe indirectly are involved or at least encouraging it in a, in a certain way. So there's something called the IM, IEMC. Oh, yeah. Okay, so here it is. So the IMEC was announced, kind of surprise announced at the G20 summit. It's a multimodal transport and geoeconomic corridor connecting India, key Gulf nations, including the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and Israel and Europe, starting at Greece, Greece in, in Greece, and eventually Italy. It, America was on board as well. So who stands to lose from the IMEC being put into effect, which aims to bridge a peaceful region with India's fastest growing economy and Europe's industrial hubs? The potential losers are China, which is, uh, you know, an anti... Um, anti anyone that's not China? <laughs> well, specifically anti... Uh, Anti-U.S. Yeah, and anti-U.S. Yeah. And and it's also going to lose its Belt and Road initiative, you know, business into its Belt and Road initiative. Russia and Iran because of their alternate international north-south-south transport corridor. Yeah. 
So basically, this is just another, you know, another indicator that as relations normalize with uh, with Israel and countries like Saudi Arabia, they can link to the broader Western economy even better, which disadvantages China and Russia as well as Iran. So, so something to think about. Yeah, it's 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 something to consider in the broader context. I think to to wrap here, just I want to point out a few things to kind of like to think about to and also to watch for uh, if if this does turn into a broader regional conflict. Um, number one, I think we watch the northern border of Israel, and like I mentioned earlier, the you know, buildup of uh, like armor, like tanks, those sorts of things from like the Syrian army, or I don't even know. If, I don't know if Hezbollah has those, but um, they might. They have a lot of missiles. They have they have the largest Rocket. missile stockpile, stockpile of any non-state actor on the planet. Um, both. Okay. They have missiles too, um, because of their super cozy relationship with the Iranian regime. Uh, the next thing I think is if you start to see anything of like American hostages being executed, ISIS style, uh, because if that starts to happen, that means that they are trying to instigate the U.S. to get involved. Like the U.S. got involved in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in fighting ISIS and those sorts of things, right? Uh, those are terrible. And I hope that doesn't happen because I I, I do not want more Americans to die. Um, I'm just pointing out that if you see those things, then... That is sort of an indicator of that's where they're trying to go with it. The, the next thing that I also just want to point out is that, like we were talking about earlier, the calculus for the Israelis is survival. There's, if you, if you, uh, depending on how deep you go down the rabbit hole of like Israeli nuclear weapons and just like intelligence in the region, there are some people who believe that, and again, like we're in the realm of speculation here. I don't have confirmation that these things are, are true or any of that. I'm not claiming that this will happen. Eighty eighty percent of everything that if it's not a fact and we haven't said this is what we read in the news, all of this is speculation. Yeah, there, there are some who there are some who believe that like top level Israeli government officials believe that Iran has already like a small amount of nuclear capable missiles, like that they could hit Israeli territory with a nuclear weapon. Yeah, and and if that is actually the case, then. There, there is a world where the Israelis get to a point where they decide that their best decision is a preemptive strike on Iran. And if that happens, that's a regional war. Nuclear strike or preemptive strike? It, it could be either. Right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, either way, if that happens, that, then that that's a regional war. Like there's just, there's no question about it. That becomes a full. The larger sport. regional Well, There's already a regional like, war happening as we speak. Yeah. Well, at this, I mean, at this point, right, like the war is between Hamas and, and, and the Israelis, like, involved. And, I mean, like at that point, I think that you, you see potentially the rest of the region drag in as well as the Europeans, the Americans, the Russians, like it, it escalates very quickly. It's very bad. So it's already very bad, but even worse, I understand. Um, I think just to close it out. Um, I know our hearts and prayers are with the Israelis and with the families and friends of, of everyone and, and, and the victims of, of everyone who's been, um, 
been taken or, or killed or hurt so far. Um, I vehemently hope that this will be resolved in a way that gets everybody back safe uh, and healthy and that no more lives are lost. I'm a realist enough to know that that, that probably won't happen. Uh, and this is an evolving story and, and we'll probably come back to it in a week or so and let you know uh, how Israel's counterattack has gone. But my hearts and prayers are with, with all the victims and with Israel. So. I'm in the same place. I think, uh, I think it's going to get really ugly before it gets better. Very unfortunate. That's terrible. Um, well, this has been a emergency episode of unqualified statesman. I have been James with you as well as with Andrew. Thank you for listening. Check in soon. Later.